It is me again. I'm back. Rachel, your host. I wanted to give you guys a huge thank you first before I jump right into this week's case. Um, Huge thank you to everyone who had listened to my first episode, gave me good feedback, gave me a rating. I really appreciate it. If one person enjoys listening to me, it makes it all worthwhile. This week's case I originally thought was going to be a shorter one, but the further that I dug into it, I discovered a lot more information than I had originally expected. Um, This case doesn't have a whole lot of physical evidence, and it does remain open and cold. So if you are looking for the happy ending, it's not going to be this one. So let's get into this week's case. This is the mystery death of Randall Allen Wilson. This week takes us to Kiowa, Colorado in Elbert County, 53 miles from Denver. Kiowa was settled in 1859 along the banks of Kiowa Creek. In 1935, the town actually witnessed its worst flood to date, washing away part of the town and having to be rebuilt by the residents from what was left. Kiowa's population in 2010 came in at 723. And since you all know that I'm a realtor, I thought that this week I'd add some fun real estate facts in. So the median income is 59,000 rounded up. The median home value is 131,000 and the average rent per month is $1,000. Randy Wilson was a highly respected teacher. Randy was born November 13th, 1957 in Logan, Utah. He is survived by his parents, Roger and Orma Wilson, his sister, Lorna, and brother, Lauren. He's also survived by his five sons, Reese, Cody, Adam, Weston, and Dean. Randy was also a proud grandfather to then one-year-old Alexander Wilson, his grandson before his death. Randy was born in Bozeman, Montana, where he graduated with his class of 1976. He then went on to get his bachelor's degree in general science at Montana State University. He then went on to teach in secondary education science, mathematics, and technology. Randy taught in quite a few places before ending up in Kiowa. Randy met his wife, Linda Lorraine Adams, in Washington, where he started his teaching career. The two were married from 1984 to 2002, and in that time, they had their five sons. Researching this case um, made it very clear how loved and respected this man was by his friends, family, and especially students. This case was requested by a fellow friend of mine, and she was a former student of Randy's. She described him as being very funny and in a super dry humor kind of way. And I have a quote here from her, quote, When I moved to Kiowa, I was angry and really withdrawn, didn't care about school at all. 
He was one of those teachers who really does care about his students. He helped me get back on the right track and learn to not take life so seriously. I almost didn't add this next part here that I'm about to redo um, because I didn't really think that it was pertinent to the case or even him as a teacher or person, but I do want to mention it because this is an open case and any generated leads could be what investigators are in need of. So Randy, then 44, uh, was placed on paid leave after a high school science project went south. And this is at Kiowa, by the way. So Randy, then 44, um, at his time here at Kiowa, was placed on paid leave after a high school science project went south. The 17-year-old student science project was meant to demonstrate how he is involved in transferring energy. This project was meant to be harmless, but was an inert bomb made with fertilizer and diesel in a test tube. This project was on display at a science fair when an anonymous caller alerted the authorities. Officers did determine the bomb was not functional at the time. Then District Attorney James J. Peters commented, quote, necessary ingredients and instructions to make it were present. The bomb was confiscated, of course, and a few people from the town had commented, stating, quote, I think it was done maliciously and people were overreacting. Fast forward to May 2010. Randy's youngest son, Dean, had just graduated with his class of 29 graduates. Randy had also received news his sons, Cody and Weston, were expecting, and they would have been his second and third grandchildren. After graduation, Wilson made the drive back home to Montana to visit family. It was on his way back home to Colorado when his life came to a tragic end. Randy started his journey home on June 13th. His last known whereabouts were in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where he had stopped to have dinner. Later, around 10.45 p.m. is when he pulled off I-70, exit 304 for gas at Aconico, just outside of Bennett, Colorado. Only 30 miles separated him from home, but he would never make it. The next day, June 14th, 2010, the late spring weather brought a drizzling cold front. Two men, Tim Fry and his friend Greg, were traveling south on the Kiowa-Bennett Road when they noticed a parked white sedan facing north in the gravel. Just across the road, in the grass lay the body of Randy Wilson. Randy was found with a white bag over his head, a belt around his neck, later determined being his own. His hands were bound behind him. The white sedan was cold, like it had been sitting there for some time. Beside it was a car jack, but no apparent flat tire. There was a black glove found near the scene. He was laying face up, and his wallet and credit cards were missing, but they had never been used. One of the gentlemen who found Randy told Denver Reporter, quote, It just doesn't seem like he fought. I didn't see any scuff marks. His clothes were clean, almost pressed. As news tends to do in a small town, it didn't take long for the news of the discovery of a body got back home to Kiowa. A former student, Sarah McFarland, said, quote, I figured some bum had overdosed in a field. I had just pulled into the parking lot of the office when a friend texted me. I fell to my knees and sobbed. I couldn't make any sense of it. The entire community was heartbroken and on edge, as you can imagine left with many questions and little answers. Not just who did it, but why. The following Saturday, June 19th, Randy Wilson's memorial services were held in the Kiowa School Gym. 
There was quite the turnout and even TV news cameras covering the story. Rumors and some known details about the case began to circulate. The Denver Post reported in August that the Elbert County Sheriff's Office was waiting to receive back test results of evidence collected at the scene. DNA. Those test results never did turn up any good leads. Elbert County Sheriff Shane Heap addressed at a news conference they were unable to link that DNA to anyone. Heap did ask the community and reporters help in locating a younger couple spotted on CT footage at the same Conoco the same night Randy was last seen alive. They were driving a 1980s BMW. Heap was struggling to find the couple, but reporters were able to locate them within minutes of the name being released. Krista Kopich was among the two in the BMW. She was accompanied by her boyfriend, Stephen Nicholson. Krista made a statement to CBS4, quote, I unfortunately couldn't help investigators much. She didn't remember seeing him that night. Krista didn't have a criminal background and the couple were cleared. Sheriff Heap made a statement, quote, we've found many things that we haven't shared with you and don't intend to that we'll keep moving forward on. On the one-year anniversary of Wilson's death, his son Weston posted in an online memorial group. The family had spread his father's ashes on the Grays Peak Trail just southwest of Georgetown. There is a wooden cross that stands on the crossroads where Wilson's body was discovered. The case then went cold for seven years. No leads, no new evidence, and so it was quite the shock when December 2017 rolled around and there was an arrest made. The town made remarks on the arrest as opening up old wounds. This is where Daniel Pesh, then 33, comes into the story. Facebook and other online media accounts gave reporters and investigators a little more information just on who Daniel Pesh was. He earned a bachelor's degree in legal studies from University of Central Florida in Orlando in 2006. His profile also mentioned he worked as an assistant property manager for Vail Resorts in Keystone, Colorado from 2007 to 2010. Along with the property management, he had also held numerous restaurant jobs over the years in Breckenridge. The last job entry was May 2017 when Pesh had moved to Denver and started working at a restaurant. I couldn't find the name of which restaurant, um, just that it was off Dry Creek Road and I-25. Pesh had quite the record of traffic tickets on his criminal record, as well as charged in 2016 by Breckenridge Police Department with felony possession of ID documents from multiple people. Obviously not his own. His charges also included possession of illegal weapon. The charges were eventually dropped in February of 2017. Pesh did have a family, a wife, and two young children. Months before Daniel Pesh was arrested, he was evicted twice. Once the winter after Wilson's death, and the second time three months before he was arrested and charged with murder. A confession should have been a step closer to solving this mystery, but the confession didn't quite match the physical evidence. Pesh's DNA was not a match from that collected at the scene. And in fact, his DNA was nowhere to be found at the scene and a logbook placed him halfway across Colorado the day of Wilson's death. I will get into further um, how Pesh exactly confessed, but first I wanted to explain in Pesh's words, he claimed he was driving along Kiowa Bennett Road on the night of June 13th when he got a flat tire. 
Pesh claims Wilson stopped to help him when they got into an argument over Pesh being intoxicated while driving. Pesh then hit Wilson with his car door, knocking him unconscious. He then covered Wilson's head with the bag, put the belt around his neck, and bound his hands with duct tape before driving off. Pesh's attorneys argued Pesh got crucial details wrong. The autopsy report on Wilson showed no evidence supporting head trauma linked to being knocked unconscious. Pesh failed to mention the duct tape used over Wilson's mouth under the bag over his head. Duct tape was never used to bound Wilson's hands. Evidence shows two zip ties were used around each wrist and a third connecting the two through his belt loop. Norman Pesh, Daniel's father, testified a logbook he kept at his home in Montrose put his son more than five hours driving time from the scene of the crime that night Wilson was murdered. Pesh's attorneys offered up an alternative theory, claiming Wilson staged his own suicide. They came to this theory based off evidence of a recent life insurance policy he had taken out on himself months before he died. The policy would have been voided if he had died from suicide. There was also evidence in Wilson's car detailing his financial struggles. Pesh first reached out to law enforcement in June of 2017 over Facebook Messenger, wanting to confess to a burglary. Pesh then met with law enforcement for formal interviews twice following this confession. On August 3rd, Chris Dennis, Elbert County investigator, received an odd text from Pesh late one night, reading, quote, I think I killed Randall, not sure. Immediately following that text, another came through saying, quote, sorry, wrong person, that was an inside joke. Investigators then collected DNA from Pesh and compared it to the crime scene DNA without any match. They next started interviewing Pesh's wife. She said Pesh had never mentioned to her that he was ever part of the crime. His wife told investigators Pesh was adopted, but his biological mother suffered from schizophrenia. Pesh had also recently suffered a concussion and was taking Adderall, Trazodone, and Abilify. Around Thanksgiving 2017, Pesh texted Dennis once again and stated his wife had left him, taking their two young children. Investigators were also made aware that Pesh had been placed on a 72-hour mental health hold in a hospital around the same time. On December 8th, Pesh's storyline changed once again, now blaming Wilson's death on a passenger with him that night named Alvarez. This man was never mentioned again, and there was no evidence this man was ever at the scene or even existed. Dennis received anonymous photographs at the sheriff's office of Pesh holding a gun wearing camouflage. These pictures were received along with a written note saying Pesh had been bragging about killing a teacher in Elbert County. On December 13th, handwritten letters were recovered outside of a shopping mall in Littleton. In the letters referred to Wilson's death as, quote, a drunken mistake. I will never be able to forgive myself for the pain I caused his family. God help me. Pesh later admit to writing those letters. And on December 15th, three days before his arrest, Pesh texted Dennis and let him know he was being evicted once again and hoping to turn himself in. I also wanted to add that at this apartment complex in Littleton that he was being evicted from after he had been arrested, this apartment complex contacted the sheriff's department and informed them of what looked to be like written notes on windows inside of the apartment confessing to the murder. On December 18th, 
Pesh drove from Georgetown to Elizabeth, followed by sheriff office personnel. Pesh was placed under arrest in the Elizabeth Walmart parking lot. Heap escorted Pesh without handcuffs across the parking lot when Pesh broke free from their grasp and tried to flee. He was then properly placed in cuffs and taken to a holding cell. On top of the murder charge, he got charged with resisting arrest, obstructing a peace officer, and attempted escape. December 2018, due to lack of physical evidence, no corroborating evidence, no DNA, no motive, and nothing to place Pesh in Elbert County, murder charges ended up being dropped. Now, the other charges, um, resisting arrest, obstructing a peace officer, and attempted escape, still stuck, and he remained in jail for those charges. Pesh had spent 414 days in jail and pled guilty to the attempted escape charge and was sentenced to three years probation. He was set to be released February 5th, and on probation terms, Pesh was required to complete a full psychiatric evaluation as well as comply with any recommended treatment. Pesh will also have to go through a drug and alcohol treatment, submit random urination samples, and hold employment with minimum 40 hours a work week. Once he was released, his plans were to stay in a sober living facility in Denver. This, unfortunately, is where the story ends. This case is still open, still under investigation, but has gone cold. There are studies why people confess to crimes that they have not commit, but I don't think that we would even understand. It is hard for me to wrap my brain around why somebody would want to sit in jail and be charged with murder, waste everybody's time, and rub salt in open wounds. But I do have to go with the physical evidence in this case, and unfortunately, there's just nothing linking Pesh to the crime. I do want to hear your guys' theories. You can follow me on Instagram at pocketfullofcrime, where I will be uploading photos of this week's case, so you can put a face to the crime. This case remains cold, but still open, so I'm going to give you contact information if you or anyone you know knows anything about this case, no matter how small or insignificant you may think it might be. It could be the missing puzzle piece that investigators are looking for. You can contact the Elbert County Sheriff's Office at 751 Ute Avenue, Kiowa, Colorado, 80117, P.O. Box 486. Their office phone number is 303 621 2017. You know what time it is. It's time to lighten the mood with my really corny jokes. What do you call an alligator in a vest? An investigator. That wraps it up for this week. Join me back next Wednesday for my newest episode. Until next time, stay weird, my friends. Oh, and one more thing. Hi, mom. <laughs>